Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and healthcare with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. As 2022 draws to a close, two issues are dominating New York state government. That's a measure raising state lawmakers' base pay by $32,000 that awaits approval or rejection from Governor Kathy Hochul. And there's growing opposition among left-leaning state senators to the Democratic governor's nominee to serve as New York's next chief judge. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. On December 22nd, state senators and assembly members voted for a pay increase beginning in January. It would bring their base salaries to $142,000 a year. Governor Kathy Hochul is in no hurry to act on the measure. Speaking just before the Christmas holiday, the governor said that she has over 1,000 bills that she is sifting through first. That is a record for the legislature that all had to be dealt with before the end of this year, so I will... Uh, address that in uh, proper time. At the same time, there's growing opposition among progressive-leaning state senators to Hochul's choice for the state's new chief judge. Justice Hector LaSalle currently presides over the state's mid-level appeals court in Brooklyn. If confirmed by the Senate, he'd become the state's first Hispanic chief judge. Some labor union leaders and pro-reproductive rights groups have spoken against the nominee, saying some of the judge's past decisions sided with anti-abortion groups and were against collective bargaining-related issues. They also say LaSalle, a former assistant district attorney on Long Island, is too pro-prosecution, and a nominee with the record of defending the vulnerable should be chosen instead. Eleven senators are on record opposing LaSalle. The most prominent is Deputy Majority Leader Michael Gianaris. He said Thursday he'd vote against LaSalle. If they don't change their minds, Hochul would need votes from Republican senators in order to win LaSalle's confirmation. The governor, who made support for abortion rights a centerpiece of her election campaign, says LaSalle's rulings are being taken out of context. Judge LaSalle has over 5,000 cases that he has been involved with. And for anyone to pull out one, two, or three cases out of that body of work that goes on through a lifetime and to find someone as being anti-woman or anti-labor based on those, when you, if you actually read those cases that are in question, they have nothing to do with a woman's right to choose. Hochul says she's not applying a political litmus test, but wants someone who will carefully consider every case and does not advertise their political leanings. She asked senators to keep an open mind. To allow this state to have the very first Latino head up the highest court in New York. I think that's historic. LaSalle has support among some prominent former judges, including the state's former chief judge, Jonathan Littman, who says LaSalle has the right judicial and legal experience for the job. Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Brad Hoylman is one of several senators who wrote a letter asking the state's Judicial Nominating Commission to consider candidates from more diverse legal backgrounds to serve on a high court that they say already has too many former prosecutors. Hoylman, speaking on the day that Hochul announced her nomination, 
nomination did not tip his hand on how he might vote, but he says LaSalle will face close scrutiny. Colleagues in the Senate and I have articulated concerns previous and those still stand. Decisions on the two issues will have to be made on nearly the same day later in January. Hochul has until January 23rd to sign or veto the pay raise bill. The Senate has until that date to confirm or reject Justice LaSalle. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gazzino. In just a few days, new terms will begin for the New York State Legislature and the U.S. Congress. New York politics in November were largely defined by the debate over crime and public safety. It helped Republicans make key gains in Congress in Albany. But Westchester County largely bucked those trends. Democratic Westchester County Executive George Latimer is a former member of both the Assembly and State Senate. He spoke with Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartalk this week about the midterm results and Long Island Congressman-elect George Santos's extensive fabrications. I think the Republicans did a very good job of making crime a number one issue of debate. And, and truthfully, you know, they, they tied it to the bail laws. And, and I could certainly argue that, that the bail laws, as they, were, uh, as they were created, require some significant change. There was some change made to it. I think more change is needed. But they made the bail laws equal the rise in crime, which is not the case. And the Democrats, in general, did not have a good pushback on it. I think Lee Zeldin played that tune on his fiddle very effectively. <laughs> and, uh, and he did very, very well in a lot of places. I did, did tell you that we pushed back on crime starting in January. Of this year, because we could see, you know, we're not, we may be a county level government, but we're not dumb people. We could see that this was going to be a theme of the Republicans. And I wanted, even though I'm a county official, I wanted to send Democrats to the state legislature to represent us. I was an assemblyman and a senator in that delegation. And I know that the Democrats are going to run those two houses. And I don't want to send Republicans there who are just going to carp on the sidelines and criticize. I want somebody in there who has influence who will be able to shape policy. So so we felt it was important to push back on crime, but we in general did not push back on crime properly. And you have places in this state where there's no crime problem, but the people believe that crime is running rampant. Absolutely. Because it was positioned that way. So let me interrupt and ask you this, speaking of the Republicans in Congress. What do you make of New York Republican Congressman George Santos admitting that he lied about his job experience and college education during his successful campaign for a seat in the United States House of Representatives? It's terrible. He should resign. It's simple as that. Now, I understand I'm a Democrat saying that about a Republican. And so people say, whoa, it's a Democrat. You just want to win the House. That, that, that. But Santos didn't just lie about one thing. If he had said, I went to Baruch and he didn't go to college, you know, okay, you lied about your college group. He lied about everything, everything. He lied about his parentage. He claimed ethnicity to connect with Jewish folks when he's not Jewish. You don't do that. And, and then here's the thing that I want to I highlight. Before somebody says, well, Latimer is just a Democrat, wants to see a Republican go. Who was it that called upon 
Hevesy, Spitzer, Schneiderman, Cuomo, Benjamin to resign. Wasn't it primarily Democrats that came out and said, this is enough, we can't take this? We police our own. When our people have crossed the line, there's a big debate, oh, Cuomo was run out on the rail, and uh, this guy, Benjamin's been uh, uh, you know, uh, exonerated and all that. But at the time that the scandals broke, Democrats spoke out against a Democrat that was scandal-ridden. The Republicans, and I think they're starting to see that now in Nassau. I have seen Blakeman say something about Santos, and I think Joe Caro too. But it's incumbent upon the Republican Party to do the same thing. When you have somebody who's a fraud, and that's what George Santos says, he's a fraud. He presented himself to the people as one thing, and he's not that at all. Now, he won because people want a Republican congressman. They're angry. So there'll be a special election. And if the people still want a Republican congressman, then they'll elect a Republican congressman. But don't send our own version of Marjorie Taylor Greene to the to the, uh, the House of Representatives, not even for one term. You know, nobody disputes the fact that Mike Lawler legitimately won his congressional seat. Nobody disputes the fact that Mark Molinaro legitimately won his congressional seat. Uh, you can like their politics. They're in the other party. It doesn't matter. But George Santos is a fraud, and he should resign. That's Westchester County Executive George Latimer speaking with Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartalk. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustino. As the first recreational sales of marijuana began in New York City this week, the town board in Rotterdam, upstate, has voted to allow the sale of adult-use recreational cannabis. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas with more. The Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act in 2020 legalized cannabis use for adults 21 and over in New York State. Local legislation that would regulate marijuana businesses in Rotterdam was first proposed in October. Republican Town Supervisor Molly Collins is watching with interest the first legalized cannabis sales that started Thursday in New York City as she and fellow townsfolk prepare for however the operations eventually unfold in Rotterdam. Well, we've heard very strongly from members of the Mahanison School Board and the Mahanison Superintendent, and, you know, their major concern, as it should be for all of us, is to make sure that our children are well protected from it. You know, they want to, They are concerned, obviously, with where are they going to go, are they going to be located next to schools, I think, you know, that they came uh, out with the strongest opinion. We've had other individuals, town members, that are not crazy about it. They would prefer that perhaps last uh, December when we had the option to opt out, that we had opted out before, you know, and, and given the state time to give us clear regulations. And then we've had a couple of people, uh, some residents, who are looking forward to the revenue stream. So I would say that if I had to guess, it's either 50-50 or 60-40, with the 60% being concerned about them. Collins notes that a series of public hearings led up to Wednesday night's passage of a resolution that will now be accepted into municipal code. Limiting 
can adult use cannabis lounges to the I-1, I-2, light industrial and industrial sections of the town. And um, the retail stores for adult use cannabis will be in B-2 areas. Business hours will be set at 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Monday through Saturday and noon to 6 p.m. Sunday. Collins says the town board is hopeful that any marijuana-related businesses setting up shop in Rotterdam will generate tax revenue, but there is much uncertainty. We hear rumors about how many licenses they're going to allow within a county or within a, uh, a municipality, um, but we still have not heard anything definite from the, from the state. So is it going to be that we'll have one store in Rotterdam and that's the only license that they'll give us? Uh, you know, I think that's what makes this so difficult is we don't have clearly definitions or information from the state. Republican Deputy Town Supervisor Jack Dodson says the eventual impact on the town is yet to be determined. From my perspective, you know, there's just too many unknowns. You know, if we were to have one facility within the town, is that going to make a big difference? In my mind, no. Um, is it going to raise a significant amount of revenue for the town? The answer would be no as well. You know, I kind of compared, and I used the analogy last night, to, you know, the state got one casino. They waited to see what kind of revenue would be generated from that. And then they decided to open a bunch of different casinos. And who knows, we could get more of those. You know, I got to believe cannabis could go the same way. They'll you know, restrict a certain amount of licenses for a period of time, get an understanding of what revenue is generated, what, may, what impacts there may be. And then decisions will be made in the future if they're going to issue additional licenses. And if that's the case, you know, the town may end up with, uh, you know, a couple additional retail outlets perhaps. But uh, in our mind, this is so up in the air and unknown at this point in time. It remains to be seen. Collins and Dodson say they're awaiting clear-cut regulations that will spell out whether smoke-on-site lounges will operate separately from take-home stores. They say the town will go carefully forward. New York officials approved the state's first 36 cannabis dispensary licenses in November. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustino. New York's Climate Action Council approved a plan this week for how the state will meet its ambitious clean energy goals. The state's 2019 Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act requires the state to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 40% by 2030 and no less than 85% by 2050 from 1990 levels. The scoping plan, developed after two years of deliberation and public input, covers most aspects of everyday life from transportation to how buildings are powered and heated. 
the Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard spoke with the co-chairs of the council, NYSERDA CEO and President Doreen Harris, and Department of Environmental Conservation Commissioner Basil Sagos. Harris begins by explaining how the state will work to electrify and insulate homes and businesses. The scoping plan does include a number of recommendations that we have concluded are going to make our homes and buildings ultimately more efficient, more comfortable, and more resilient. And, and the primary way in which we'll do so is, is by making, again, our homes weatherized as well as electrifying these buildings as well. And I think when we, we really have learned about these actions and their impacts, we know that they are actually going to help in a lot of ways by insulating our consumers against what have been very volatile gas prices, as examples, um, to really help keep our heating bills more stable, but also to keep them more comfortable. Um, when we think about weatherizing our homes, we have air sealing, insulating, et cetera. It, it has the benefit of making our homes more comfortable and reducing heating costs. But it is also the case that when we think about electrification, we are talking about replacing in some instances, oil or propane or gas with high efficiency or source or ground source heat pumps. And, and that really is not only going to reduce our energy bills, but I think a major plus is provide air conditioning as well. So we see a future in which we're really looking at new technologies that are going to have myriad benefits for New Yorkers. Does New York State right now have a method to uh, explore new technologies or invest in new technologies to bring them up to a scale where they could be installed in millions of homes to help meet the clean energy goals? Well, NYSERDA has a, a very strong innovation team that's been investing actually for, for decades to bring new technologies forward. And we now see some very significant amounts of federal um, leverage that we're really going to be uh, applying as well. You know, the good news for us is that when we think about the changes we're talking about, they are bolstered by changes elsewhere. And, and this federal leverage is a big part of bringing forward those new technologies that we can be utilizing in the coming decades. So it's, it's a big focus of the plan is really how we can invest in innovative new technologies to solve the challenges of the future. How does the scoping plan affect an everyday driver? There is all the conversation right now about transitioning to electric vehicles, but right now, unfortunately, due to supply issues or the expense, there is not as many electric vehicles on the road as gasoline-powered or hybrid vehicles. So uh, what's in the plan to help incentivize New Yorkers embrace EVs? Well, uh, Lucas, I, I would bring you back to uh, one of the governor's first actions uh, last year was was to uh, sign into law the requirement uh, that every uh, new vehicle sold after 2035 would be electric. Um, and we're in the process of uh, finalizing regulations right now that would help to uh, solidify that, that march to electrification. Um, you know, we have uh, right now in New York um, – you know, an increasing number of EVs on the road. I mean, the, the, uh, the various manufacturers have have, have hit uh, supply chain issues like every industry over the last uh, two years due to the pandemic. Uh, but you do see, uh, you know, the major manufacturers starting to develop these uh, very affordable uh, EVs. So you have you have the industry moving in the right direction on this and providing that choice to New Yorkers. 
you also have an incredible level of investment here at the state level uh, to expand charging network across the state. So, you know, we need to make sure when that, that choice is available to a New Yorker and they want to invest in an EV, uh, that, you know, we can address issues of range anxiety and, um, and, and make sure people can charge the vehicles and ultimately not experience, uh, you know, the, the, the kinds of, the kinds of um, you know, hesitations perhaps that in the past have, have beset those, those individuals. Um, you know, as an EV owner myself, um, I can say I, I had that range anxiety right before I, I, I bought my car. And, and now I don't even think about it. And it really is a point where uh, the state is, uh, is well on its way. Uh, even though it, it's a it's a five percent of the, the state's uh, drivers are in EVs, that's actually a fairly significant number. And I think as 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 uh, uh, Dorian and I have, have discussed in the past, you know, that's that's really when you start to see uh, the market begin to expand at that that at that five percent rate. So uh, again, we have some time on this, but um, I think I think you're seeing that New Yorkers have, are unhappy with the uh, gas prices, with the fluctuations in gas prices, what that's meant to them. You know, the cost of an EV now, uh, the life cycle cost of an EV is, is in some ways less than having a traditional gas-powered vehicle. And, um, and, and that's, that's the, the kind of choice that we want to we uh, incentivize in the coming years, uh, certainly until the, uh, the industry catches up. One of the chief concerns that I heard from the agricultural sector is in introducing new technology, electric farm equipment, that there is a significant expense there. Uh, so is there any other plan in the works or can something also be done to help incentivize farmers and the agricultural sector to also adapt to the clean energy goals? Yes, I mean, absolutely. You know, we're also working on uh, medium and heavy duty vehicles. We're, we're uh, Working with our uh, multi-state partners to uh, to ensure that there is uh, a level playing field from a regulatory perspective across the country uh, to uh, do what we can to incentivize the industry to develop these vehicles. And we fully understand that you know there are some vehicles that are going to be very very difficult to electrify. Uh, the heavy-duty farm equipment is is one example of that, um, and you know the plan uh, acknowledges that. Uh, I think we have said repeatedly just in our in our respective roles that um, it will take time for some of those heavier heavier vehicles to uh, to come to market and be cost affordable for your in in this case for your your average farmer um, but that's you know not to prevent us from uh, from uh, focusing our our electrification efforts uh, writ large ac- across the state and do what we can really to to help uh, bring these these technologies to market. New York State is often seen as a leader in environmental policy. So are there steps in this scoping plan that other states could possibly use as they develop their own roadmaps to meet their own climate goals? I would say this this work product that we have prepared is not only indicative of the leadership of of New York and, and certainly the governor, but also of really articulating the actions needed to achieve goals like those within the Climate Act. And so when you review the scoping plan, I think it's important to note that it isn't, it isn't, it's, it's a huge amount of analysis, um, which bolsters what is really a series of actions that, that are necessary to achieve our goals, but frankly also to ensure that we receive the hundreds of billions of dollars of benefits um, to our state that will come from, from these investments as well. 
And so when we see other states coming along, I had noted it's not only important that they come along, that we're part of truly a global movement to address this threat that is climate change, but it is also the case that the scoping plan already is gaining attention from states who are interested in answering these fundamental questions, which is, what does it take? How does one actually advance um, investments and actions toward the achievement of these goals? So in many ways, this is a roadmap that may not end up being unique to New York. Um, there's principles that will apply throughout the nation and the world. And, and Lucas, I would say that the, the process uh, by which we arrived at this scoping plan is also very important and perhaps can serve as a an inspiration in other states. Um, you never want to focus on process. It's a bit more mundane, but truly, um, you know, taking the time to assemble a, a plan that involves um, you know, t the 12 major state agencies and, and their commissioners, uh, the appointment of outside experts, uh, stakeholders, taking the message to the public uh, on a on a significant basis across the state. Um, those are the kinds of things I think that, that give these kinds of plans a chance to succeed because uh, they're not just the product of, of perhaps, you know, state experts. They're really um, the product of stakeholders who understand communities, understand the business community, understand the environmental justice community, so that uh, ultimately when we have to begin doing the regulatory process, uh, we're not surprising uh, anyone. In fact, there's there's a degree of empowerment that comes along with with a robust process. So I think um, to to augment everything Doreen said uh, about the substance of of the plan, it's also the process of the planning that we did that's vitally important. I think is a is a good template for other states to mimic. New York State Department of Environmental Conservation Commissioner Basil Sagos and NYSERDA CEO President Doreen Harris, co-chairs of the New York Climate Action Council. They spoke with the Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard. does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2252. Or just listen online at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.